your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me once again to the sixth chapter of Ephesians. And if you are a, a guest this morning, uh, perhaps here for the first time, over the last several weeks, we've sort of been combing our way through these verses in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, and really, verses 10 all the way through verse 20, he sort of concludes his epistle to the Ephesian church with this emphasis on spiritual warfare and the armor that's been supplied to every believer in Christ. And he has said there in verse 10 that we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And someone says, well, how is it that we are indeed strong in the Lord and the power of his might? Well, verse 11, we put on the whole armor of God. And the reason we're to do so is because we're involved in a very real conflict, a spiritual conflict. And Paul says there that uh, in verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual evil. And we need the armor of God, which is really the armor which God supplies every believer in Christ. We need this armor so that we can stand against the wiles of the evil one who wars against our soul. Now look at verse number 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then beginning in verse 14, he mentions the individual pieces of the believer's armor. We're told to stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And notice verse 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation. And we considered that last week, the helmet of salvation, how the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ, what we've been given in Christ, our salvation in Christ, this is really something intended to protect or, or serve as our grid through which we process all of the ideas, all of the information that comes our way, all of those deceptive thoughts and ideas that the enemy hurls at us. And so just as a helmet was sort of protective armor for the head, so also is this helmet of salvation protective armor for the believer's mind and heart, which is really the battlefield where the enemy launches his attacks against us. And then notice we're to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So really the only offensive weapon that's mentioned here is this sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the Word of God. Now how do we wage war? Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. Now, some would say, well, this is a seventh piece of armor, perhaps. Though you'll notice that there's really no corresponding piece of armor mentioned here in the analogy. I believe that prayer is the way that we wage war. This is the way that we do battle. Having taken up the defensive shield of faith with which we extinguish everything the enemy throws our way. And having taken up this offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, we're able to be on the offensive and launch, as it were, a counteroffensive against the enemy and his tactics. I'm to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
And then Paul says to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so having considered five pieces of this armor, which are already mentioned, we come now to this sixth piece mentioned in verse 17, and that's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so I want to speak from that subject this morning, uh, the sword of the Spirit, and obviously there's a lot that can be said here. Because specifically we're told that this sword of the Spirit, this is, this is a metaphor, a fitting analogy for the Word of God in your life as a believer. Now, folks, you know that there is absolutely no other book on earth that can even begin to compare with the Bible. The Bible stands apart from all of the other books that have ever been written because it alone is the Word of God with the power to transform lives and even entire societies. And you can read history and, and discover that wherever divine truth, as it's revealed in the pages of God's Word, wherever that's been introduced to individuals within a society, it's led to the transformation of those individuals, which in turn, over time, even results in the transformation of that society. I'm reminded of a good illustration of how this is the case. Uh, many of you are familiar with the story, Mutiny on the Bounty. It's a book that was written, uh, I think there's a movie that's been made, but it's based upon a historical incident which took place on the HMS Bounty in April of 1789. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that there, were, there was a group of British sailors that really launched a mutiny against their captain. And these mutineers were uh, led by the first mate. His name was Fletcher Christian. But they seized control of the Bounty, which was, which was the British ship that was being used by the Navy to uh, transport breadfruit uh, fruit plants from islands in the South Pacific. And so the mutineers, they cast 18 uh, men adrift in a small boat. They then sailed off with the Bounty to a nearby island. They sank the Bounty in the bay, and they started building a community there on that island in the South Pacific. Now, Fletcher Christian, he became sort of the ringleader of the group. Uh, they treated the island natives as, as servants and slaves. They made a distillery and began brewing whiskey, and so you can imagine what kind of life they had there on the island. They were drinking all the time, fighting all the time, murdering each other. It was complete anarchy. But one of the men in the group, uh, his name was Alexander Smith, he found a Bible that was in a trunk that had been salvaged uh, before the bounty was sunk there in the bay. And so as Alexander Smith began reading that Bible, he came to faith in Jesus Christ and his life was transformed as a result. He then began teaching scripture to others there on the island and others within his group. And before long, the entire society on the island was completely changed. Even to this very day, Christianity in the South Pacific can trace its roots to the influence of Alexander Smith and the introduction of Christianity there. And it all started with reading this, this Bible, possessing this word. That's why what Paul says here is so very true. This is the sword of the Spirit 
by which he convinces us of our sin and shows us of our need for Christ. And so this is the sword that you and I have been given as we do battle with the enemy who seeks to overwhelm us and even undo us if he could. You've been given a weapon, my friend, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, you know that one of the greatest statements that the Bible makes about itself uh, comes from Isaiah 55. Uh, Listen to what the Lord has to say about the value of His Word. He says in Isaiah 55 and verse 10, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Listen to this. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose, and it will succeed in the thing for which I send it out. Now listen, that's a promise that I claim as a Bible preacher and teacher that no matter what things may seem like in terms of outward response, whenever the Word of God is faithfully declared in the power of the Spirit of God, it always produces results to the glory of God. God's Word will not return to Him empty or void. And so who knows what it is that God's going to accomplish today in the hearts and lives and in the minds of people as His Word is faithfully being declared. Who knows how God might use his word in your life as you pour over it, as you study it, as you read it, as you share it with those with whom you come into contact. His word will not return void. Now listen, this is a powerful, powerful word. And we're given an unconditional guarantee. And so for that reason, no other piece of literature in the history of the world ever comes close to competing with this book, which is the Word of God. It's not the Word of man. It didn't originate with man, but it was revealed and given by God himself. It is God's Word, and it is this sword of the Spirit that we're going to consider for just a few moments this morning. Now, as we do so, there are really just two major points of emphasis that I want to draw your attention to concerning this sword of the Spirit. So, first of all, uh, let's take a look at what it means to understand the Spirit's sword in terms of principle. Understanding the Spirit's sword in principle. Because before we can really begin to see why the sword of the Spirit is so very important to us, practically, I mean, as we wield it and use it in terms of spiritual warfare, we really, first of all, need to understand what Paul's referring to to begin with. What does he mean when he's referring to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Well, notice a couple of things here. Uh, First of all, notice with me the description that we find. Because here in verse 17, we're told to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And so there's the description. The only offensive piece of of weaponry that we, we find here in this passage is this sword of the Spirit. Now, I want you to put your thinking caps on for just a moment and use your imagination and think about how warfare has really changed over the past 20 centuries or so since Paul wrote these words. I think about modern warfare and how so much of it is done, you know, with technology, I mean, just with clinical efficiency, all at a safe distance. I was reading this morning the headline how Israel was, was, was really trying to 
keep some of those militants from crossing the border from Gaza into Israel. They were using drone technology. Unmanned aerial drones that had some type of firepower where by computer technology they could just launch missiles or whatever it was to keep these militants from crossing into their, their, their country. Now that's sophisticated. So you think about laser-guided smart bombs and cruise missiles launched from submarines and unmanned aerial drones and all this kind of technology. In, in, in many ways, a modern soldier can just simply key some command into a keyboard and launch a strike on an enemy who may be several hundred miles away. That's not to say that ground warfare isn't still a reality, because it is, but let's just be honest, warfare has changed quite a bit since Paul writes these words in the first century. But you see, his readers would have been absolutely clear as to this analogy and why this sword of the Spirit is so very, very important. They would have understood that to mean this is important for hand-to-hand, up-close, eyeball-to-eyeball combat. I mean, they've got a shield in one hand, they've got a sword in the other, and the word that Paul uses there, uh, translated as sword, it's the Greek term makera. And the makera was really descriptive of the Roman short sword, which was no longer than eight, 18 inches long. It was basically just a, just a big dagger that was so efficient and so really lightweight and maneuverable so that when they were in those situations of hand-to-hand, eyeball-to-eyeball contact, they had something offensive, a weapon in nature that they could use from an enemy that was literally breathing down their neck. And so again, the comparison then is clear for Paul's readers. Now, I'll be honest. I think most of us would prefer spiritual warfare to be like the modern kind of warfare, you know, as if God would provide me with the ICBM of the Spirit or something like that. Some type of long-range weapon. Why? Well, because we want a quick fix to our problems. I mean, don't tell me that the enemy is really breathing down my neck and that spiritual warfare and my growth as a Christian oftentimes involves eyeball-to-eyeball, enemy-breathing-down-my-neck kind of a struggle. (laughs) Now, if you'd be honest, you know that that's been your experience. It's not that he keeps himself at a safe distance some hundreds of miles away, but oftentimes he dogs your steps. He whispers his lies into your ear. He seeks to infiltrate your mind with those deceptive thoughts and ideas that he has. And so that's why this sword of the Spirit is so very important. Now, the Bible actually uses a lot of different analogies to refer to God's Word. James describes God's Word as being a mirror that reveals. That is, as you look into this Word, you're able to see who God Himself is as He's revealed Himself, but you're also able to learn something about who you are, what humanity's basic and fundamental problem is. And the thing about a mirror is that a mirror just tells it like it is. You may not like what you see, but let me tell you, it's not going to change just by smashing the mirror. <laughs> so the, the Word of God, it's like a mirror that reveals. It's also like a seed that reproduces. That's a second metaphor that we often see used in Scripture to refer to God's Word. Uh, Peter says that you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. And so the seed of God's Word is what, whereby life, spiritual life, 
originates. A third illustration we find of God's Word is that it's like milk that nourishes your soul. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, like newborn babies, long for the sincere milk of the Word so that you may grow thereby. Just as a baby craves her mother's milk, so also do you and I crave the precious Word of God. Uh, The psalmist says that God's Word is a lamp that shines. Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, folks, we live in a very dark world, and listen, our world is becoming darker by the day, and there are dangers that threaten the safety of all who would travel the narrow path that leads to life, and far too many travelers have suffered disaster along life's pathway. That's why you need the word of God to be a lamp for your feet. Reminds me of a story from the Pilgrim's Progress. If you're familiar with the story, you know that it's an allegory of the Christian life. And the main character in the story, written by John Bunyan, his name is Christian, and he's a pilgrim who has this this burden on his back. He's a citizen living in the city of destruction. And he's been given a book that tells him about the coming doom and how that city's going to be destroyed, but that the king has a city known as the Celestial City. And so Christian sets out on a journey from the city of destruction, and he meets some interesting characters along the way. The first person that he meets is a man by the name of Evangelist who shares with him the hope of salvation, who gives him counsel, who points him to the direction within the book. But he meets some other interesting characters along the way. For example, there's a guy named Worldly Wiseman that he meets. Mr. Worldly Wiseman who begins to counsel him and say, you know, that book has led many folks astray. What you really need to do is you need to take this little pathway off of the road that you're presently traveling, and you need to make your way to the village known as Morality. And there at the village of Morality, you'll meet a man by the name of Legality. And you see, Legality, he can help you with the burden that's on your back. And you see, Legality lives in the shadow of Mount Sinai. So what does Christian do? He ventures from the pathway on his way to the village of morality, and he finds himself in a dreadful situation. Now, folks, I want you to listen to me. That's an allegory. It's a fitting illustration of so many worldly wise men in life who want to encourage us to take their pathways. Why would you take counsel from an ancient, antiquated book like the Bible anyway If you really want to thrive, if you really want to be successful in the 21st century world, then listen, the Bible is not what you need. You need need the counsel of worldly wise men. No, what I need is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's a lamp that shines light on my pathway. It's an infallible guide that will not lead me in the wrong direction. Other metaphors that you find, uh, Jeremiah 23 talks about how God's Word is a fire that consumes. Uh, It's also a hammer that smashes or shatters. And that's important because it says something about the human heart. Our hearts are hard. What is it that brings life change but this life-changing Word of truth, which is the Word of God, the power of God that leads to salvation in Jesus Christ. And so the final metaphor is that of the sword. The Bible, this is is a sword that pierces. 
It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That should bring to mind another passage of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the writer of Hebrews says that it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Someone has said that the Bible is the only book that as you read it, it reads you. And so the Bible is more up to date than tomorrow's news. There's not a dull side to this sword. There's not a blunt verse as far as this sword of the Spirit is concerned, because every word is profitable. Every word in the Bible is razor sharp and can cut deep. But listen, it's not the cut which is intended by God to, to really destroy, but it's like the surgeon's scalpel in the mighty hands of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, the surgeon's scalpel, those of you who've ever been under the knife for whatever reason, you'll testify that it's a painful process. But it's a healing cut because as the, the surgeon takes the scalpel, he's able to open up the flesh and remove that which is destroying and killing and taking life from you. So it is with the sword of the Spirit. It's a painful cut, but listen, it's a healing cut because it points me to the balm of Gilead, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the great physician. So that no matter where you turn in this book, this book ultimately is pointing you to the hope of salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. All right, so that's the description then of this sword of the Spirit. But then what about the definition that we're given? The definition. Notice that Paul says that we're to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In other words, this is the place where God speaks to us authoritatively and uniquely. Now, you may be interested to know that there are at least three different words that are used in the New Testament to describe God's Word. There's the word graphe, or graphe, which is a word that's often used. Uh, think about 2 Timothy 3.16, where the Bible says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word that's used there, translated Scripture, it's this word graphe. And the emphasis is that of God's Word as it's been recorded or written down. Peter uses this word in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, where he says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of graphe, scripture, it ever comes from someone's own private interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, listen to this, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So both Paul and there to Timothy as well as what Peter says here is talking about how scripture ultimately comes from God it's been given by inspiration of God it's God breathed God uses the the agency of human authors all within their personalities but what was written was not the words of man but it's God's own word which he has revealed both to the prophets and the apostles so this is God's word and I can stand with confidence and tell you that this right here is God's word. And I would be remiss and it would be a dereliction of my responsibility as a pastor teacher to ever preach anything else other than this word right here. Because this word alone has the power of God to change a person's life. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ either rises or falls with this book right here. 
And we're living in a time when so many, even within large swaths of the evangelical church, are completely setting the word of God aside and they're chasing after fables and they're following after the opinions of man and pop psychology and whatever's popular with today's culture, all in the name of trying to build a crowd. That, my friend, is not gospel ministry. That's not word-based ministry. No, we need the sword of the Spirit. Graphe. Now, the second word that's used uh, for God's word in the New Testament is the word logos. Perhaps a little bit more familiar term to you because it's used in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. A few verses later, John says, and the word, logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And so there John is saying that the eternal Lagos, the word of God, is the second person of the Trinity, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So that Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. He is the Lagos incarnate. So that when God has revealed himself to us, here's what he's done. He came and lived among us and dwelt as one of us tabernacled with us, revealed God in a perfect way so that to see him is to see God, to look upon him is to look upon God. So if graphe, if, if the emphasis of that term is God's word as it's been recorded, logos, the emphasis of this term is God's word as it's been revealed. It's the same word that is used there by that writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.12, for the logos the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we would say logos refers to the complete revelation of what God has said. It refers to the divine message of the book itself. So that what you see here, this is not just words printed on a page, but what you find here, this is the logos. This is the word of God, and Jesus himself is the word made flesh who dwelt among us. Now, those are two interesting words, graphe, lagos. But those aren't the words that Paul uses in verse 17 to describe the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. No, he uses, a, there's a third term that's often used to speak of God's Word, and it's the Greek word rhema. Rhema. And that's the word that, that, that Paul uses here. And that's a word that speaks of a specific or timely word, a specific saying, a verse that has a specific application to an immediate situation. So that if graphe emphasizes God's word as it's been recorded, and logos emphasizes God's word as it's revealed most perfectly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then listen. This word rhema emphasizes God's word as it's received in my life. It implies the use of God's word as it's applied to a specific experience in our lives. Now that's significant that that's the word that Paul uses here in verse 17. Because as we're doing battle with the enemy who's launching his fiery missiles our way, how do we extinguish those darts but with the shield of faith? And then how do we launch a counteroffensive but with, but with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word, the rhema of God? So I need a specific word from the word. The graphe, the writings 
The logos, the message, the rhema, this is a specific word from God for my situation. And how does God give it? He gives it right here. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, think about this. Maybe, maybe you're wrestling with the flaming arrow of fear that Satan has launched your way. For whatever reason, you're, you're, you're scared. Fear seems to be gripping your soul at this present moment. So what do I need to do? I wield the sword of the Spirit, which says specifically in Psalm 56, verse 3, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. You see how that's a specific rhema for that particular situation that you're dealing with? Or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 7, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That's a word from God for me as I'm dealing with this flaming dart of fear. Or what about the flaming dart of covetousness? Has the enemy ever sent those missiles your way and tempted you in the area of covetousness? You saw something that you felt like you just couldn't live without. And you had to have it. But the Holy Spirit was convicting you and telling you, no. How do you do battle with that temptation? Listen, you wield the sword of the Spirit, which says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Folks, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the sword of the Spirit, the rhema of God. Or maybe you're wrestling with just feelings of worthlessness and the enemy's come along and he's launched that dart of worthlessness into your mind. And how do you combat that? Listen, you wield the sword of the Spirit which says in Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, O God. My soul knows it very well. So that when the enemy tells me that I'm nothing, and the enemy tells me that I'm worthless. No, I can wield the sword of the Spirit against that evil fiend. And I can say, that's not what my God has told me. My God has told me that I've been fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen. And so on and on and on we could go. The enemy tempts you in the area of lust. What do you do when you combat that evil dark that the enemy launches your way you wield the sword of the spirit which says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse number 18 flee sexual immorality so on and on we could go and you see how this is so very practical that's what's meant here by the apostle Paul when he says we've been given the sword of the spirit which is the word of God rhema it's God's word for a specific circumstance in your life. We would even say spoken word. Which is why you need to spend time in God's word on a daily basis. So that you're prepared whenever the enemy comes your way. I mean, do you know God's word to such a degree where you're storing up his word in your heart and in your mind? The psalmist said, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Are you so familiar with God's word so that when the enemy comes and you have to do battle and you're eyeball to eyeball in the heat of combat and you feel his hot breath on your neck, are you ready to wield the sword of the Spirit? A specific word in that specific moment addressing that specific situation? All right, so this is the understanding then of the Spirit's sword in principle. Now notice the second thing, and this is where it gets practical 
But how do we utilize the Spirit's sword in practice? I need to understand what's meant here in terms of principle, but how do I utilize the Spirit's sword in practice? Now, you know that a sword never did any soldier any good when it was sheathed. No soldier's sword was ever intended to simply remain sheathed. It had to be utilized in the heat of combat. And neither is your Bible simply a book to remain on a shelf collecting dust or on a coffee table or in your car or in an unused Bible app. It's only good as much in as much as you open it and use it as you wield the sword of the Spirit, which means I've got to read it. I've got to study it. Meditate upon this word. Obey this word. It's not been given simply for the sake of information, but for transformation. And so this sort of the spirit is necessary for at least three things to take place in your life. All right, so number one, it's instrumental for spiritual life. Apart from the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, there'd be absolutely no way for a person to ever come to faith in Christ to begin with. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And guess what word Paul uses there? It's rhema. It's this message of God, this gospel that's believed, that's received, that's obeyed, where I place my faith and my trust in Jesus And so as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to the heart, faith is generated so that a child of God is born. And folks, listen, that's why conversion is really a supernatural thing. The greatest of all miracles is when God changes lives and when a person turns from their sin and believes the gospel and there's a spiritual birth that's taken place, that's a miracle of all miracles. But it doesn't happen apart from the agency of God's Spirit who uses God's Word like a seed or like a sword that pierces. Which is why God can't simply be found through human investigation. God's revealed Himself in a general way just through creation. And there's plenty of evidence around to testify of the Creator. But that's not enough to save a person, is it? No, for that, you've got to have special revelation, and that's what God's given us in his word. And perfectly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, bled and died for our salvation. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in the opening verses of his letter that long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the worlds. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And listen to this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Rhema. That's the word that's used there in Hebrews 1.3, which means that the very universe that we live in is being upheld by the sovereign word of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that scientists are absolutely baffled as to what holds the atom together. And the most basic microscopic parts of the material, they can't understand it. And you've got men who've got PhDs and pedigrees and more degrees than a thermometer who studied this kind of stuff and they can't understand it. 
And yet a, a child who's reading Hebrews 1, verses 1, 2, and 3 can understand through the work of the Holy Spirit that it's Jesus Christ who's holding their life together. It's Jesus Christ who's holding this material universe together. And listen, if it's his rhema that's holding the very universe together, don't you think that he's got your life taken care of? Amen. Don't you think that he can take care of what's bugging you? The details that we tend to worry about. Oh, man. I'm preaching to myself here. So, it's instrumental for spiritual life. But then notice this sword of the Spirit is also important for spiritual growth. Not only do I come to faith by the power of God's Word, but it's also necessary for me in terms of continuing in that faith, making progress in that faith, growing in that faith. If you go back just a few verses to chapter 5 in Ephesians, Paul has explained the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And the word he uses there is rhema. Same word he uses here in verse 17 for sword of the spirit. And what's his ultimate purpose? Well, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So he's sanctifying me and growing me and conforming me to the image of Christ by means of this sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then a third thing, practically speaking, the sword of the Spirit is indispensable for spiritual warfare. It's instrumental for spiritual life. It's important for spiritual growth, but let me tell you, it is absolutely indispensable as far as this business of spiritual warfare is concerned. And notice, it's the only weapon that we've been given with which to deal the enemy a decisive blow in our lives. Now again, I think the case could be made that prayer is also a, an offensive weapon that we've been given. And so notice how these two are linked together. You've got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then on the heels of that, Paul says, praying always. And by the way, wasn't it these two things that the leaders of the church in the book of Acts devoted themselves to? There was all kinds of stuff going on that was dragging the apostles away from their calling. And so they tell the church, listen, find some deacons who can help in some of these areas so that we can give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. In other words, we're going to engage in this business of spiritual warfare. Uh, we're going to engage in this warfare whereby we're declaring the word and we're seeking to win people to Christ and I'm gonna give myself entirely to the message of the word, the sword of the spirit. And so Rama. By the way, turn to Matthew chapter 4 for just a minute and see how this is illustrated in the Lord's own life. In dealing with temptation. And as we've seen over these past several weeks, Jesus is the one who's taken on the enemy and he's defeated him in every way. And we stand in Christ's own victory. But look here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, the temptation narrative Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
So there's the evil insinuation there. There's the fiery dart. If you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. And let's just be honest. If you're the Son of God and you've got all power, why don't you just take these stones and turn them into bread and so satisfy your physical hunger? And so how does Jesus respond? Verse 4, it is written. You know what he's doing there? He's wielding the sword. That's what he's doing. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you know what word is used there in Matthew 4.4? Word? Rhema. Same word that Paul uses in verse 17. Sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The devil doesn't leave, but he tempts him a second time, takes him to the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and says to him, if you're the son of God, just throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus says to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. A third time, the devil takes him to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and says to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels ministered to him. So three times, Jesus counters the enemy's temptation by saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. Now listen, I've got to be honest here. I have often failed miserably when it comes to combating the enemy who comes and tempts me. When I should have responded by simply saying, it is written, No, I often succumb to temptation, and so I have failed. But where I have failed, Jesus has gotten it right, and I stand in his victory. And that means that now as I stand in his victory, he supplied me with his armor that I'm to put on, and I'm to take up this sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and wield it. By the way, you know what book of the Bible Jesus quotes from three times in Matthew 4? The book of Deuteronomy. I mean, if your spiritual survival depended upon how well you knew the book of Deuteronomy, how long would you last? (laughs) And so wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the weapon you've been given. Let's stand as we pray this morning. You know what this demands in my life? As I'm to put on this armor, which again, it's all just a metaphor of all that I've been given in Christ. But by faith, I trust Jesus. I appropriate all that's been given to me in Jesus. And you know, every day in my life and in your life, you ought to determine to get into God's word until God's word gets into you. So that when temptation comes and when the enemy attacks and you find yourself in a variety of situations, you know what you'll have in that moment? You'll have the sword of the Spirit, the rhema, the Word of God, God's Word to you in that specific moment. You say, where do I go to find it? Listen, right here, right here. 
People say, Pastor, do you believe God still speaks? I do. But right here is where he speaks. As you get into the word, and God impresses upon your heart truth from his word, you need that as you deal with life circumstances and challenges. Now, if you've never received Christ as your Savior this morning, here's where it begins for you. Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, raised to life again according to the Scriptures. And the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by this word of Christ. Believe the gospel and be saved. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, thank you for the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Lord, you've given us this armor, which means that we're not without precious resources, Lord, as we walk as pilgrims on our way to the celestial city. You've given us this gospel armor. We stand confidently in the success and the victory of Jesus. Everything being fastened with the belt of truth his breastplate of righteousness which is ours the gospel shoes of peace have been given to us and put upon our feet we've got the shield of faith that we use to fend off those fiery missiles from Satan and the helmet of salvation firmly upon our head protecting our minds and our hearts and Lord in Jesus name we wield this sword of the spirit the rhema the word of God in every situation in which we, whatever we face. And God, there's some folks facing some situations today and they need a word from you. May you speak from your word powerfully into their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.